Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, November 17th, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. We read the news so you don't have to. Jill, we got a lot in the show today. We got a little bit of sports. We got a little bit of politics, a little bit international. So I'm, I'm excited. I think we've got some good stuff in here. Some new info on who fired that missile that landed in Poland. Some traditionally conservative media outlets getting a little cheeky with President Trump as he announces a third run at the White House. Lawmakers taking some steps to protect same-sex marriage. The controversy around Qatar or Qatar as it gets set to host the World Cup. We're going to figure out how to pronounce that. We're going to figure out how to pronounce that country (laughs) by the end of this World Cup, Jill. Uh, Yes, that is not the controversy that we're referring to, though. Uh, John Stewart, a self-proclaimed spokes Jew, talks about the rise in anti-Semitism and how he thinks best to handle it. And Swifty is not too happy about a Ticketmaster snafu. And now they're taking action. Oh, man, these people, some people lost a day or two of their lives waiting for (laughs) T-Swift tickets yesterday. Okay, let's start, though, with the situation in Ukraine. It looks like World War III has been averted for now. Poland's president saying Wednesday that the missile which landed in his country near the border with Ukraine and killed two people was most likely a Ukrainian air defense missile that went awry and not fired from Russian forces. He called it a, quote, unfortunate accident, allaying fears that Poland and NATO allies could be drawn into a direct conflict with Russia. The NATO secretary general saying a full investigation is underway. There is no indication, though, at this time that it was a deliberate attack by Russia. Still, uh, they are pointing fingers at Russia. He says, quote, let me be clear, this is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine. Uh, Mosh, the White House also responding. Yeah, they say they have full confidence in Poland's investigation. Uh, They see nothing to contradict the president of Poland's preliminary assessment that, in fact, this was a Ukrainian missile. Interestingly, Zelensky remains unconvinced that it was his. He says he believes it was a Russian missile. But the White House uh, does feel pretty sure that this was a Ukrainian missile. But they do add that Russia is partly responsible for this incident because Russians sent dozens and dozens of missiles into Ukraine, and the missile that errantly went into Poland was Ukraine's missiles trying to take down those Russian missiles. So they reiterated that Ukraine does have a right to defend itself and that Russia needs to end the war. One story, Jill, I'm watching right now is coming out of Turkey. Turkey has been, obviously, is very close uh, geographically to both countries and has been really trying to carve out a space between Russia and Ukraine to begin peace talks. They've been pushing since the spring for peace talks. They're calling for a new diplomatic initiative uh, beyond the grain deal that they were already able to uh, get an agreement on that allowed Ukraine to export food. They now want to build beyond that and try to uh, strike a ceasefire soon. Incidentally, Turkey is also right now where the CIA director is, and he's talking to his Russian counterpart, though Americans right now uh, say that's not part of a peace negotiation. But, you know, always interesting. Turkey's making that push. The CIA director was there. Uh, and it does come as America right now is trying to clean up the remarks last week by our Joint Chiefs chair, Mark Milley, the general, who's a four-star general, said that a victory by Ukraine may not be achieved militarily, kind of admitting what we all really know, and that this winter may provide an opportunity to begin negotiations. Uh, Ukraine took offense at that, being like, what's up, America? Your head general is saying we need to negotiate. And so the White House is trying to clean it up, being like, no, no, Ukraine, we totally support you. But I think Milley was really just admitting what everyone knows, which is Ukraine, it's going to take years for them to take back the country, if ever. And by then, the world will continue to, you know, kind of move beyond this. So 
there is this push now, Jill, for uh, Ukraine to have to unfortunately acknowledge that they might have to lose some of their land to Russia for peace to be achieved. So I was watching the, the press conference with Milley and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and they were asked about those comments. Milley kind of doubled down on it. And he said, look, right now with Ukraine's military victories in Kherson and elsewhere, Ukraine would be negotiating from a position of strength, a position of power. Of course, though, he says it is up to Ukraine to decide how they want to proceed and if they do want to negotiate. Yeah, the bottom line for Zelensky is, you know, he has uh, tried to stand up for his country now for the last 10 months. Uh, They've lost, you know, lives, land. Uh, The economy is pushed back a couple of decades, hundreds of billions of dollars. And so it's going to be very hard. Uh, for him to make that turn for his country, but he's going to need to being like, listen, we're going to have to deal with the reality where we don't have Crimea, where we might have lost some land if we want to see peace anytime soon. On to presidential politics. Donald Trump's big announcement that he is running for president again has landed with a bit of a thud. And that's what some members of his own party, Republican mega donors, have mostly said they're going to be looking at a new crop of candidates like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Most of the TV networks cut out of his Tuesday night announcement at Mar-a-Lago, even Fox News and most the New York Post throwing him some serious shade in their Wednesday paper. This was a surprise even as I saw it this morning. So Rupert Murdoch uh, and Lachlan Murdoch, his <laughs> son, who run News Corp, uh, they own the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, the New York Post, runs right, was very much behind Trump for four plus years there. Their cover, they basically hide at the bottom of the uh, front page on Wednesday Florida man makes announcement is their headline. And then when you go to the article on page 26, the headline is been there, done that. They describe former President Trump as a Florida retiree making a big announcement. They say his cholesterol levels are unknown, but his favorite food is charred steaks with ketchup. I mean, it really, they really stuck the knife in him uh, at the New York Post. But by the way, Jill, it wasn't just the New York Post. Um, if here's a here's a sprinkling of conservative website headlines from the announcement. Red State Blog writes, Trump shocks the world by nearly putting us to sleep. American conservative <laughs> headline. Old Mar-a-Lago man yells at cloud. Blue state conservative, Donnie, time to go away. And the Washington Examiner, Trump 3.0 is a changed man. He's a loser. Oh, and I should add, by the way, National Review kept it very simple, Jill. The headline was no with a picture of Trump. Moshe, it is so brutal. I feel like um, I feel like we're in the UK where the media there notoriously brass, as evidenced by their treatment of, of the UK's shortest serving prime minister, Liz Truss. Yeah. You, I don't totally expect this from US press. I just, I, I don't know. What do you what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I expect it from the New York Times. I expect it from NPR. I expect it from the Washington Post, especially in regards to Trump. I did not expect the conservative media to be as critical of Trump, especially so quickly. And it's going to be really interesting to watch because like, some of the other candidates might not announce for a few months. So it'd just be Trump in the headlines being criticized right now. Now, he's a survivor. He's going to pivot. He's going to figure it out. But it's interesting. You know, I noticed as we uh, began to tape this podcast, Mike Pence is out with another interview. He's out with a book this week. So he's doing a lot of interviews. And he obviously, one of the first questions, Donald Trump, your old boss, announced for president. Uh, Do you think he's fit to return to his old job? Pence would not answer the question. He just replied with, I think we're going to have better choices in 2024. I'm very confident that Republican primary voters will choose wisely. Uh, Pence, by the way, has been waiting to run for president for the better part of 20 years. So he's looking to run against him. I don't know how much traction he's going to get in the kind of Republican world that we're in these days. 
But uh, it does appear that the conservative media, the right wing media, is open to some choices and is not as loyal as maybe Trump expected them to be. Okay, so you did a uh, an Instagram live with Alex during the announcement, and you got tons of really really good questions. What was the general consensus? And I think just people, even conservatives, are just exhausted. Like they're like, listen, he was a new sparkly thing in 2016. He was uh, taking on the Clintons, who we hated, and these are conservatives talking, right? And he was speaking to our concerns in the heartland. And like, that was fine. But then we saw who the guy was. And even if I wanted to vote for him, and some of them say they voted for him in 2020, I just can't do it a third time. It's been like six years, seven years since he first announced. And then I'm gonna have to deal with him for another six years uh, with this election. And like, I think there's just general exhaustion. And I think you get that sense in the headlines too. In other political news, we learned late Wednesday that finally, eight days after the election, it is official. Republicans have 218 seats needed to control the House. It's a very slim majority, and it's going to complicate the party's ability to govern. Imagine, Jill, that you have like a three, you know, McCarthy's going to have between like a two to five vote majority, meaning he has to make sure that in any given vote, that 218 people all agree with each other. But he can't lose more than five or six if he has to keep 218. So what that's going to mean is going to be very interesting. You know, like you can look at it optimistically or pessimistically. Optimistically, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic White House, and a Republican House are all going to have to agree with each other. So it could make room for some bipartisan compromises. At the same time, we know how these things work. And so, uh, you know, it might mean very little gets done. And the big thing, Jill, to be on the lookout for is this will mean the big investigations will be coming from the House side the next two years. So this is Hunter Biden. This is IRS. This is Afghanistan and what really happened last August and why the withdrawal was so bad. Look out for that and look out for concerns among Republicans not to go too far, but to do their duty and, and look into the White House. Okay, one other story that we've been tracking on Capitol Hill, the Senate, one step closer to passing a bill to protect same-sex marriage. Democrats and 12 Republicans advanced the Respect for Marriage Act, which is now on track to become law. A clear priority is Democrats don't have much time left in control of both houses of Congress. So what exactly is in this bill? Well, it does not require that all states legalize same-sex marriage but it does require that individual states recognize another state's legal marriage. So the final passage of this bill will likely happen after the Senate gets back from Thanksgiving recess. But clearly there is some concern here that the Supreme Court could overturn the 2015 uh, Obergefell versus Hodges decision that legalized same-sex marriage. 12 Republicans, uh, I I don't know if you've gone through the names, I have any surprises there. Uh, That is uh, more than they even needed. Right. They needed they needed 10 Republicans to get to 60. And I think some of these not that surprising Tillis, Portman, Burr, uh, three retiring Republicans. So typically when you're headed towards retirement, you can make such such decisions. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, more centrist. I think what's notable, Jill, is actually the 37 Republicans voted against the bill. Right now, if you look at polls, 70 percent of Americans, more than 70 percent, support same-sex marriage. That includes a majority of Republicans. It's really been remarkable to just see the evolution on same-sex marriage in just the past 30 years uh, from where we were in the 90s when like Clinton administration was uh, saying they couldn't support same-sex marriage to even Obama in 08 uh, had to say he only supported civil unions, not even same-sex marriage. It took Biden on uh, Meet the Press famously uh, to announce his support, which kind of forced Obama into it. The bottom line, Jill, 
people should keep in mind as they think about this law that will go in, this is really just a backup plan. Uh, this really came out of the Roe v. Wade overturn in June when Clarence Thomas took to his um, specific decision, and this was just Clarence Thomas speaking for Clarence Thomas, which is what Clarence Thomas does, and he's saying everything should now be on the chopping block, including Obergefell. Kavanaugh and other conservatives on the Supreme Court said, no, we're not touching anything else. Uh, this was only about abortion, but there's obviously concern having seen what happened with uh, with abortion, for which was the law of the land for 50 years. Uh, and that got overturned. So there was this big push among Democrats to codify gay marriage in a way they never did abortion. And most supporters of the bill hoping to pass this legislation through the House before the end of the year, um, as we discussed, Republicans taking control of that chamber in the next Congress. Okay, we have a lot of news to get to in the rest of the podcast. But first, I want to thank our sponsors today. Our newest one is Bolin Branch. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have been part of the viral debate that we had recently about whether you use top sheets or just a duvet. There was a recent story that said that Gen Z and millennials were kicking off the top sheet. I threw it out to everyone. I literally got thousands of you responding to me, talking to me about whether you use a duvet or a top sheet, your sleeping habits how you and your partner sleep together or apart or in different beds or in different rooms, what blankets. Anyway, you guys shared a lot. And Bolin Branch, the betting brand, took notice and is very excited to be offering Mo News listeners an incredible deal this holiday season, 25% off for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. My wife, Alex, and I recently got a set that included pillowcases, duvet cover, and yes, a top sheet. We are old school like that. And they have been a game changer. They get even softer after each wash. We are loving the 100% organic threads, free of toxins. And whether these sheets are for your own bed, your kids, guests when they come over, or you're looking to give the gift of a good night's sleep this holiday season to your friends or family in their homes. A reminder, we literally spend a third of our lives in bed, so sheets are a very big deal. We have the signature set in white, uh, but they have tons of options with and without top sheets. Uh, Alex is actually thinking about also getting the set in mist for our bedroom. And so I'm so happy to announce this special early Black Friday deal for Mo News listeners, the gift of a better night's sleep, get the best deal of the year, 25% off and free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, over at bowlandbranch.com. That is B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch, bowl and branch, B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code MONEWS. The offer ends on November 27th. There is one more great deal this holiday season I want to tell all Mo News listeners about. This one comes to us from Athletic Greens. Their AG1 all-in-one vitamin is a must as we head into cold and flu season. As many of us know, trying to get all your vitamins in uh, is very tough. And if you're trying to do them individually, it can be very hard to keep track of your vitamins and can get a bit pricey. So I've been using the Athletic Greens AG1 for a couple months now. Uh, it is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. The experience has been simple, affordable. I'm feeling an extra boost of energy, especially in the middle of the day when you know you tend to lag. So the AG1 powder contains 75 important ingredients that includes vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, probiotics to support your gut health. All of this combines to really help you build that strong immune system, especially as we head into this winter, a nutritional insurance policy, if you will. And here is the best news. 
With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Visit athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News to take advantage of the offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it for just one month. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal to really start to take ownership of your health. All right, Jill, it is time for our speed read. I want to start with his big expose in the New York Times. Uh, the World Cup starts in just a couple days on Sunday, but there's a lot of scrutiny happening about the a country that is happening in Qatar. Qatar? Qatar? Which one do you go with again? <laughs> I say Qatar. You say Qatar. I believe in the uh, original Arabic, it's Qatar, but like then we're going to start pronouncing France and Italia and that that would be a little crazy, but I'm going to go with Qatar for purposes of right now, I think. Uh, but uh, we were laughing about this. Because, well, first of all, you and I both studied Arabic, right? Which is, uh, you know, where many a year ago, many, yes. many moons ago. And we are going to be talking about Qatar, whatever, however you want to say it for the next, at least for the next couple of weeks with the World Cup. So we're just going to both be saying it differently. Yeah, yeah. Just get, get ready for tomato, tomato, Qatar, Qatar, whatever. Anyway, regardless. It's, it's like, you know what it is? It's like in a normal news organization, in a typical news organization, there there's a note that usually goes around like this is the, pronun- we're going with AP is pronunciation. Right. And in this case it's just me and you and we're both really stubborn and i'm like i'm sticking to cutter and you're like i'm sticking with qatar so yeah the that's that's where we land for everyone who's curious the world cup will be lasting until the third week of december so a lot ahead a lot ahead here (laughs) so but anyway in all seriousness uh this first story in our speed read which is not so speedy so far is all about the tens of thousands of workers who have been basically building the stadiums there and infrastructure in qatar getting ready for (laughs) these games going back to 2010. And the Times goes into specifically the number of workers who have died um, building these stadiums, specifically from the country of Nepal. So Qatar is a very small country, and so they have to import a lot of workers to build things. Human rights organizations, according to the Times, have now put the death toll in the thousands, though the official death count from the Qatari organizers is 37. In fact, they say only three people died in workplace accidents. Human rights organizations, by the way, some of them say upwards of 15,000 people might have died in the past 12 years. A lot of these workers, especially from Nepal in this story, are ages 25 to 45. They take these jobs, send money home to their families. They live out in the desert. And what doctors are finding is they're succumbing to an array of ailments that includes premature heart attacks, people in their 20s and 30s getting heart attacks, unexplained heat-related health problems, uh, what one local official described as environmental disadaptation, uh, but the Qataris don't explain what that is. Uh, There's been an alarming number of stories of suicides, almost 200 in the past decade among those migrant workers. A doctor in Nepal says what's crazy is they're fit before they leave for Qatar, and then they come back suffering from kidney failure, other ailments, some some of them dying within just a couple months or years of returning home. It really is horrible. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about how Qatar even got the bid to host this game, you know, the games in general. There's right. been a lot of criticism about their record around gender and LGBTQ equality. And you posted this video, the games haven't even started, but there's already been some tension between uh, an official and a member of the media. A Danish reporter was reporting live on TV, too, when a group of men approached him in a golf cart. They were clearly upset with his filming. One man stuck his hand in front of the camera and, and basically tried to cover it up live on TV. So the reporter said in English, Mr., you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. 
and not sure if this is how it's going to go for the rest of the the tournament, but a rough start. And obviously that pales in comparison in terms of the seriousness of, of the story that, that you talked about um, with all of those workers who who died. But what the heck is going on? I mean, it's well, just, I, it's crazy. Well, you would think it's a, you know, they've spent more than $200 billion in preparation for these games. This is a big coming out for Qatar. This is the first World Cup taking place in the Middle East in the Arab world. And so for them, this is a big show. So you would have thought they would have their act together here and be trying to, you know, you want to be friendly to the world's press corps, uh, typically trying to go out of your way to welcome them. So that I found fascinating. By the way, Jill, when you talk about LGBTQ rights inequality in Qatar, you're literally talking about a country where uh, being gay is illegal. Uh, I have been told by somebody uh, with good sources over there, by the way, um, that the government there uses gets on same-sex marriage apps and tracks them. So just avoid them if you somehow happen to be there. That is a way that they're able to arrest people. Uh, Dua Lipa, apparently it was rumored for a while that she was going to perform at the opening ceremony. She actually had to go ahead and deny that, saying... She does not believe in traveling there until it fulfills its human rights pledges. The former team captain for the German team is not attending, saying uh, that he has human rights concerns. Um, so there, it's going to be really interesting to watch what's happening off the field in addition to what's happening on the field there. Speaking of which, on the field, Jill, the teams to be looking out for, uh, I just went to 538 Politics, which, by the way, also ranks and runs statistics on who is most likely to win the World Cup. Brazil, most likely, followed by Spain. France is the defending champs. They are uh, third most likely to win. The matches will begin on Sunday. From USA Today, FBI director says TikTok poses national security threat and that he is extremely concerned. FBI director Christopher Wray telling Congress this week that he is extremely concerned that Beijing could weaponize data collected through TikTok, the popular app owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, during a House Homeland Security Committee hearing on worldwide threats this week. He said that the application programming interfaces or the APIs that ByteDance embeds in the short form video hosting are a national security concern because Beijing could use them to, quote, control data collection of millions of users or control the recommendation algorithm, which can be used for influence operations. Also of note, he said China's fast hacking program is the world's largest. They've stolen more of America's personal and business data than every other nation combined. What are they going to do with it all? I mean, it's th- this story is fascinating. There's a concern uh, with China on a number of fronts, Jill. I was reporting earlier this week about all the farmland they're buying in the U.S. and that there's legislation right now to, to ban China from buying farmland uh, in terms of what they can do. They buy farmland also around military sites. So that's something to watch for. But speaking, uh, going back to ByteDance and TikTok here, I was struck recently by a report in Forbes magazine uh, that found that ByteDance, they reported that ByteDance planned to use TikTok to monitor specific location details of certain Americans. Uh, TikTok pushed back on that report, uh, and actually they slammed Forbes for publishing the allegations, for take it for what it's worth. Uh, It does fall in line with a lot of the concerns we've been seeing recently about TikTok. Right now, the White House is in negotiations with ByteDance. And apparently, according to the New York Times recently, they are nearing a deal right now to get TikTok to house all of its data on Americans here in the U.S. Um, This is a version sort of what you saw the Trump administration negotiating with TikTok a couple of years ago that sort of fell by the wayside. And then ultimately, uh, it's now back with all of these reports. Uh, And Christopher Wray, by the way, for his part, the FBI director, says that uh, the FBI's foreign investment unit is working with the White House right now as part of the negotiation with TikTok and uh, the future of TikTok here in the U.S. 
you know, you make such a good point about the farmland. There, there is also a lot of concern that China has been buying up a lot of ports around the world. Um, right. So you could imagine what that would mean just for for shipping. You and I have talked about doing a special podcast and getting some some interviews about China and what's going on. So everyone, look out for that. From CNN, specifically from Sanjay Gupta's newsletter, study finds huge increase in children going to the ER with suicidal thoughts. A new study says the number of children being seen in emergency rooms for suicidal thoughts has increased 59% since 2016. The researchers found that the increase started even before the pandemic. In June, the Biden administration called the recent rise in rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts among kids an unprecedented mental health crisis. The study's co-author says they are seeing kids as young as five years old with these kinds of suicidal thoughts. Mosh, that's what really got me. I mean, that is shocking. It is it is very concerning. I, many of the children, uh, as we were reading through this report, Jill, uh, who were hospitalized for suicidal thoughts, had other mental health problems like anxiety, depression, substance abuse. Certainly substance abuse, not in the case of the five-year-olds, but the study actually tracks five to 19-year-olds um, over the last five years. And um, of the more than 80,000 of them that had some sort of suicidal ideation, a quarter uh, were kept in the hospital. And they actually think, unfortunately, Jill, that the number is even higher than what the study found because a lot of children who struggle with thoughts of suicide don't end up going to the hospital. And so, you know, I guess the one hope that a lot of folks have here is that uh, this leads to a serious conversation about mental health in kids and that mental health treatment for children becomes less stigmatized because there certainly are a number of people out there who are like, I, why does my nine-year-old need a therapist? From The Hollywood Reporter, John Stewart says censorship, not the way to end anti-Semitism after Chappelle-Kanye scandals. So John Stewart weighing in on the anti-Semitism debate surrounding Dave Chappelle, Kanye West, and Kyrie Irving during a guest appearance on CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert on Tuesday night. So Stewart called Dave Chappelle his very good friend in the wake of Chappelle's SNL monologue. Now, the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, has described that as, quote, popularizing anti-Semitism. Stewart told uh, Colbert, his former Daily Show colleague, that he does not believe censorship and penalties are the way to end anti-Semitism. Here's what he said about Kyrie Irving specifically. Penalizing somebody for having a thought I don't think is the way to change their minds or, or gain understanding. This is a grown-ass man. And the idea that you would say to him, we're going to put you in a timeout. You have to sit in the corner and stare at the wall until you no longer believe that the Jews control the international banking system. Like, we have to get past this in the country, the ability to... Look, people think this. People think Jews control... Hollywood. People think Jews control the banks and to pretend that they don't and to not deal with it in a straightforward manner, we will never gain any kind of understanding with each other. Mosh, you posted this entire segment on your Instagram page. I reposted it as well on mine. We talked about it earlier offline and decided that we wanted to discuss it on the podcast because there is this real debate right now in the Jewish community about how to deal with this rise in Jew hatred, which is quite alarming. So do you engage? Do you try to get these men fired or their contracts canceled? as a way to show that this type of language is dangerous and there's no room for it in the public discourse? Do you just let it go because the backlash causes even more anti-Semitism? 
agree with Stewart or not, the one thing he said that is quite true is that anti-Semitism, unfortunately, has already been normalized with or without Kyrie and Kanye and Dave Chappelle by evidence of looking at the comments section on literally any post about this topic. I have spent way too many hours, I mean, literally hours scrolling through the comments People are posting with their own photos and names, proof that, yes, this is normalized and it's pretty frightening. The gist is that they usually say something like, you know, finally someone's saying it or, well, he's not wrong. And and that would be the nicest of the comments. So what is the answer? How do we stop this? I, I don't know. I mean, I send my daughter to a Jewish school. I am scared every single day. That is not an exaggeration. I drop her off and I really am frightened. So I would say... Yes, let's engage. Let's talk. Ignoring the problem or just trying to shut it down is clearly not working. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's been a whole spectrum of reaction. Um, and we need to take each of these situations uh, individually, right? Because in the Kanye situation, you clearly have a man who's having a mental breakdown, but he's saying blatantly, like extreme stuff. Then you have Kyrie, who endorsed a film uh, that has, you know, uh, I think the most overused phrase, anti-Semitic tropes. But like he endorses this film that he does not appear to have totally understood. He's also a guy who believed the earth was flat. So then that's Kyrie. Then you have Dave Chappelle, who's a provocative comedian who doesn't like to have doesn't like to be censored on what he says. And so I get Stewart's point that there needs to be nuance here. I also understand others who are saying that Stewart's being Pollyannish. Um, you know, the Jewish community is rightfully, rightfully concerned. It's less than 80 years since the Holocaust that began with rhetoric about how the Jews have too much power and we have to take away power. So that's one of the reasons, you know, for non-Jews who are listening, why Jews get so sensitive to this stuff, because it's like, whoa, whoa, this is how it starts. And so that's ultimately one of the concerns here. And keep in mind, Germany until the 1930s was one of the most progressive and advanced countries in the world. So that is one of the things that again, leads to the, this concern, you know, and, and that's why I, I struggle with the, um, the Chappelle thing specifically. And, and I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to post the John Stewart thing, because I, I think he brings up some really interesting points. Um, and that the idea of canceling things immediately, where you can't have a discussion sort of reinforces the point sometimes that they're trying to make, which is, well, why can't we even use the expression? Why can't we even mention that Jews exist? Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of them in certain professions. I don't know. I mean, what what are you thinking? So I, you know, I think that one of the challenges that the American Jewish community is having at this specific moment is that we are used to, in a lot of ways, dealing with anti-Semitism, but it usually comes from the right, you know, the far right, not neo-Nazis, the people who marched in Charlottesville. And those mm-hmm. are kind of the run of the mill anti-Semites that were like, OK, we know how to handle that. What we're seeing now is different. It's a lot of it is also coming now from the left, um, as right. if you call it the left, um, and especially amongst you know the black community, the Jewish community in America and the black community in America have a long history of being allies in the fight for civil rights, and it's only recently that there has been a bit of a, a wedge, and so I think we're we're struggling with how do we fix that? How do we address? This type of what, whatever you want to call it, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish, you know, just misunderstanding, whatever it is, I, I think that's part of the challenge right now. I mean, it, it requires, I mean, a lot of people fall back on the fact that, yeah, rabbis marched with Martin Luther King. And that was a time in America not so long ago, 60 years ago, where many communities had signs that read no blacks, no Jews, no dogs, even in the north, even in the Chicago area. 
And but I do think that there hasn't been um, enough of an effort to continue to cultivate those relationships, and that's and that's um, leading to you know some of the questions or the the lack of trust um, between the communities. And I think it's a, you know this is a reminder of all of that. One thing, Jill, I, I want to mention by the way, as we talk about like, well, why there's so many Jews in Hollywood? Well, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. I was I was re- you know doing a little research into this. And one of the few professions Jews were allowed to be in back about 100 years ago was in vaudeville, that like rich upper middle class Christians looked down on vaudeville. So a lot of Jews got involved in vaudeville. Well, vaudeville became Hollywood. And so keep in mind, by the way, you know, like there's only 6 million Jews in America. We're only 2% of the population, definitely more than 2% of Hollywood leaders, but still not the majority of Hollywood. We don't have meetings on Thursdays. Jill and I talk to each other every day, but we're not part of any of the big, as John Stewart joked, any of the big Jewish committees where we make these big decisions. It wasn't like a, a like a central conspiracy, like we're going to control Hollywood, we're going to have sports agents, we're going to have doctors, we're going to have finance. But it's interesting because, so that was vaudeville to Hollywood. And then fashion was another place that a lot of Jews were able to get involved in because they were allowed to be tailors. Again, that was a profession that was not um, banned, uh, Jews were not banned from. So, you know, you look around today and the fashion giants Mark Jacobs, Zach Posen, Diane von Furstenberg, uh, sorry, Diane von Furstenberg, Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, Michael Kors, Tory Burch, all Jews. Um, so it's very interesting. The and and you typically end up going in, in the professions that your father uh, and mother did, and your grandparents did, etc. So that's why you tend to have. But and we can have that conversation. We don't have to be like, whoa, you mentioned Jews. You know, too many Jews in Hollywood. Like you're an anti-Semite. You're like. Well, let's talk about it. Let's have an open conversation about this. No, Moshe, I think the history is really important there. And and you make a great point. And John Stewart actually talked about this. He said, you know, success, just say with other white Americans, is just viewed as success. With Jews, though, it's all of a sudden it's a conspiracy. And I laugh because it's like, Jews, typically, we can't agree on anything. You and I literally can't even agree on how to say cutter. I mean, (laughs) we're certainly not conspiring to take over the world. Um, You know, and and, 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 (laughs) but even if you look at like, even if you look at political donations, right? So you've got a George Soros and then uh, on the left, and he's making a lot of big donations to Democrats and to progressives. And then you've got Jewish donors on the right. Right, They're not. But yeah. Exactly. And and he actually came out saying he's not going to back Trump anymore. He's going to yeah. find a different Republican. So it it just goes to show you that there's not like, a, I, I can't even believe like, I have to prove this. But if you really look at the facts, <laughs> clearly well, yeah, we're like, not all in cahoots. <laughs> well, I was going to say all 46 presidents, not Jewish. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it's interesting, but it's easy for people when they're in uh, dealing with adversity to be able to have a boogie boogeyman as someone to point a finger to, you know, and it's it's interesting because like even in some countries where there's hardly any Jews left, like Romania, like once in a while when like economic times get tough, they're like, well, it must be the Jews, and the Jews are like, yo, there's like 800 of us left in this country. Like, <laughs> what do you mean it's us? Like, it can't be us anymore. You know what? Um, I'm glad we discussed this, and perhaps longer than we should have, but I'd be really curious to if anyone's listening your thoughts on this whether you're jewish whether you're not jewish it's such an important discussion so uh, mosh what is the best way that people can reach us podcast singular p-o-d-c-a-s-t at mo.news podcast at mo.news and i just i want to reiterate we've said this before here on the podcast and you've done such a great job with this on your instagram feed let's have a discussion there's no right answer here i i i want to have this be a safe space where we can really talk about important issues so 
please let us know what you think. If you agree with us, if you don't, uh, if you want us to just go away, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> <laughs> only nice things, only nice things. This is not Twitter, Jill. <laughs> okay, Mosh, let's end with the latest on the T-Swift ticket gate. This from CNBC. There is something about Taylor Swift and breakups. Nicely done, CNBC. Activists and lawmakers are renewing calls to split Ticketmaster and Live Nation after a fiasco over ticket sales for the pop superstars' upcoming Eras Tour. Live Nation, which merged with Ticketmaster in 2010, has faced longstanding criticisms about its size and power in the entertainment industry. People amplified their complaints this week when tickets for Swift's concert went on presale on Ticketmaster's website. The company was forced to extend presales after fans flocked to the site, which caused disruptions and slow queues. This was a disaster yesterday. Uh, I was getting a lot of DMs about it of people just waiting, waiting for six hours, not getting their tickets. I mean, this is the concern, Jill, always with monopolies, which is, uh, you know, I understand why they're talking about the Live Nation Ticketmaster tie up because it doesn't, it forces, it means that there's no competition. No one needs to like improve their stuff. They get big and fat. This is actually an issue with the aviation industry too, as Boeing ate up a lot of its competitors and questions as to, you know, the types of planes they're building now and the safety of their planes, that they're not facing real competition. They're guaranteed the contracts. It's just them and Airbus. And so here in the ticket industry, less in terms of security and safety uh, ramifications, but still nonetheless frustrating and probably in need of disruption. Uh, And, you know, you saw the thousands and thousands of uh, tweets and Instagram posts about uh, things crashing. Uh, Some users were shown an error page that says, we're sorry, something went wrong on our end and we need to start over. Um, And uh, our team is on it. So that's so not reassuring, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think actually the way it read was the error page read, we're sorry, something went wrong on our end and we need to start over. (laughs) Broken things are a drag. Our team is on it. So it doesn't happen again. I would throw something at the computer if I saw that. That's so that message is almost more annoying than um than whatever error happened. Yeah, like what who wrote that? Guys, who wrote that? The customer <laughs> service department at Live Nation. We'd like you to write in. You can email us at podcast at mo.news. You should take responsibility for that. <laughs> All right. Thank you everybody for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. You could follow us, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Yes, and also, if you could take a moment to review us uh, today or tomorrow, but today, do it today. Um, <laughs> we're going to try a different tactic every day, Jill. Leave us a review. It helps us continue to grow the podcast. You can just leave us a couple stars. Send a screenshot. We might mention you on the podcast. Yes. Um, if you DM me a screenshot of your review, that would be amazing. Um, and, of course, follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. All right. See you guys. Manana. <laughs> <laughs>